And I'd love for you to get your Bibles out and open to the book of First Thessalonians. What I want to talk to you today is very basic, very foundational. But it's always the foundational things that are first to be attacked and also first to be taken, taken for granted. It's the foundational things that we uh, think we believe, but we find out we don't believe like we think we believe. You know what that's like, right? It's those foundational, elemental things that are the root for everything else good that God wants to do in your life. And it's for that reason that, that the enemy attacks the foundations first. He attacks you right at the root. And if your roots aren't grounded and stable in him, then, then of course, if he can attack the root, everything else goes. So today I want to talk to you about something that, that you, probably could, you could probably sit there and go, I know that. I've heard that before. I, I believe that. But what we always want to do when the word is planted in our hearts is we want to make sure that we're receiving the word and that we're also saying, God, if I'm hearing it again, what are you saying to me from your word today? What is it that I need to receive from your word today? Don't just say, I know that, because this isn't, this isn't Lakeland College. Thank God for Lakeland College. We, we like Lakeland College, but this isn't Lakeland College. You didn't come today so that you could, um, you know, just learn something you've never heard before. You came today to be equipped to receive something from God. And so it's more than just new education. It's, it's something that God wants to place in our hearts. And so if we turn to 1 Thessalonians, if you'll remember in the book of Acts, the first time we encounter these people from Thessaloniki, from, from Thessalonia, however you want to say it, whether you want to say it like the Greeks said it or the Romans said it, or whether you just want to say it like us Canadians say it, uh, which I don't know how we say it. Thessalonia. Uh, <laughs> however you want to say it, the first time we encounter these people, it's not a good experience. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul and, and his preaching buddy showed up here and were soundly kicked out. They were rejected by the local synagogue. They were rejected by the people they were preaching to, and they moved on. Uh, unfortunately, when they moved on, there were some of their Christian brethren left behind that took the brunt of it, particularly a guy named Jason. Jason was dragged out of the city and, and almost, almost killed uh, because of the gospel that was being preached. And when we move to the next city, when Paul and, and his friend went to Berea, uh, the Bible says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because the Bereans received the word with an eager heart and eagerly searched the scriptures to see that these things were so. So the Bereans were shown to be noble because they received the word. You know, a lot of people talk about the Bereans and they think what's so noble about the Bereans is, well, they checked their Bibles before they believed it. But the scripture says the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonia. The reason they were more noble, it says, because they eagerly received the word. They eagerly received the word. The reason the Bereans were noble-minded is because they received the word, as opposed to the people back in Thessaloniki that rejected the word. These guys received the word, and when they got their Bible out, they weren't saying, I'm going to prove them wrong. They got their Bible out to eagerly see that these things were so. So these guys opened up the scripture. Now, all they had was the Old Testament. When they opened it up, they found Jesus there. 
And it was like their eyes were open for the first time. The things that they'd read since they were kids were all of a sudden alive to them. How many of you have, 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 have had scriptures that you, maybe some of you grew up in the church or maybe some of you have been born again for a long time, but how many of you have had a, 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 a passage of scripture, something that the Bible says that you believe for a long time, but, but there was a moment where it clicked like for the first time? You guys know what I'm talking about? That happens to me regularly. I have had several clicking moments with the same scriptures. You know, we, we just think, we think so linear and we think so logically. We think that once it clicks, we've got it. But the word of God is, is alive. The word of God is not a statue, it's living, right? So if I were to go to a museum and look at a statue, I could look at that statue, I could study it, I could sketch it, I could go, walk around and I could get to know that statue so well that I could come back 10 years later and describe the statue to you. And it would be exactly like I described it. But you can't do that with a person, can you? I can't, I can't you know, study Brother Eric here and say, I, I got him figured out. I walk around him and I, I take notes and 10 years later come back and say, this is exactly the way he's going to be standing. This is exactly the way he's going to look. He'll be different. He's, he's 10 years older. Not only that, but he's moving around. The word of God is not a historical document. It's alive. And I've said this to you before, but it is not just what God said thousands of years ago. It's what God is saying right now. If you'll treat it like God is talking to you today, then it performs its work in you. So the Thessalonians didn't receive the word very well at first. But by the time that Paul writes his letter to them, he brags on them. Apparently something changed. And, and, and to be fair, not everybody in Thessaloniki rejected the gospel. It was just the synagogue that did. But you had guys like Jason. You had those that really received it. They were in the minority. But how many of you know when someone is in the minority believing God, those people are often very full of faith. Those people, when they're being persecuted and they still believe and they're still holding on, you'll, you'll usually find that those people are for real. Because all the fakers, it's not convenient to be a faker, so they, they go away. And what you're left with are the real deal. And so that's what happened in Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki. And then when we find this in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, and just go ahead, and if you haven't turned there already, then turn there with me. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, we give thanks, and this is verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, we've talked about this before, so I won't spend too much time on it, but I love that verse in, in verse 2, sorry, verse 3 where it says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. We talked about this a few Wednesdays ago, but those faith, hope, and love are the, are the basic elements of the fruit of the Spirit. They are the three that remain when everything else is, is, is pushed to the side. Those three things remain, faith, hope, and love. They work together. And faith, hope, and love Always produce something in your life. What does he say? Work of faith. Faith will produce action in your life. 
Now, when we hear the word work, you think of your job that you go to. But that's not the work that we're talking about. It could be translated your action of faith. So what does James say? Faith without works is dead. Faith without corresponding action is dead. He says, if you tell me you have faith and there's no action with it, he says, one of us is wrong. You can't say, I've got faith, and, and, and there's no action with it. Faith causes you to move, right? So, I mean, Peter, sitting on the boat, Lord, if it's you, call me out on the water. Faith made him get out of the boat. He could stay in the boat and say, well, I, I believe, I believe I could walk on the water. I believe you're calling me out. But if he doesn't get out of the boat and walk on the water, he doesn't, it doesn't matter what he says his heart, it me, what his heart really means. It doesn't matter what he thinks. If he's not getting out of the boat, it's proving where his faith is. Him getting out of the boat proved, I have faith that if he calls me, I'll walk on the water. So faith produces work, produces action. Labor of love. And I talked about this, but, but that, that word labor in the Greek is not... Is not um, talking about something that's easy. It's talking about the kind of work that you don't naturally do. It's talking about the kind of work that is not necessarily easy to do. But love compels us. Love will cause you to do things for God and for people that you wouldn't have otherwise done. And you'll do it gladly. And what does hope produce? Steadfastness. Show me a person that has hope. And I'll show you a person that'll keep going when everyone else gives up. Hope produces steadfastness. Hope produces endurance in your life. What are you hoping in? Where is our hope? I mean, and we've talked about this before, and this is not really the topic for today, but let's clear it out of the way. Let's figure out that the English word hope and the Bible definition of hope can be two different things. How many of you hope that Canada wins the final today? (laughs) Apparently, we have some Europeans in the crowd, and that's okay. (laughs) Don't tell our hockey players that we only, you know, only a quarter of our church supports them. That's fine. (laughs) Your hope, you hope that they win, but like I said, that's the world's definition of hope. What you're really saying is that would be nice. That would be good. It's not an earnest expectation, but the hope in the Bible is is convinced, and the hope in the Scripture is tied to God Himself. The Bible says it is anchored into the throne of God. So the hope that we have is not tied to circumstance, but it's tied to the very nature of God. So we have hope because He doesn't change. We have hope because his promises are sure. We have hope because he's always good. We have hope because we know that there is a resurrection coming and we are resurrected in him. We have hope that in the day of judgment, as he is, so are we. That's where our hope is. Now he says, all of this is coming from what they received from God. He goes on and he says in verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, is choice of you. Then he says in five, for our gospel. So here's why faith, hope, and love are working in your life. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all 
the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So in, in, in the Roman world, when he's writing this, Greece is divided. Macedonia is northern Greece. Achaia is southern Greece. But he's saying, everybody's heard of your church. Now, when I read that, maybe I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little jealous. The good kind of jealous, not the bad kind of jealous. You know, Paul said, I want to provoke my brethren to jealousy. I want, I want that. I'm, I read this and I go, I want to be, not because I, not because I really want to boast about our church or our church name, but I'd love to be the kind of people that the whole province hears about. Not because you got the biggest church. Not because you got the coolest website or the best band. I want to be the kind of church that the whole province hears about because God is working in their midst. Their city is changing. Things are happening all around them. Something's real here. What does he say? He said, you have become an example to all the believers. Then he says this, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So he's saying here, the whole world has heard about you guys. Do you see what he says? The word, he doesn't say the word just sounded forth to you. He said the word sounded forth from you. Now I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. God's word when it's preached from, like when we're preaching it this morning. What I'm doing this morning, by preaching the word of God, Jesus would say this is like a sower planting seed. But let's use a different analogy for a minute. If I were to play this guitar, and I could play something good, and I could play something bad, and if I didn't turn on my amplifier, a couple of you would hear that, right? People listening to the podcast can't hear that. You can hear that, but you can only kind of hear it. Because right now, I'm playing a guitar without any amplification. And I could play well, or I could play sloppy, and some people would just never know, because it's, it's not amplified. But the moment we crank this up, then all of a sudden, everybody hears it. Now, if we really wanted to bother the neighbors, we could crank it up. I'm not going to do that. We want the neighbors to like us. Although, we've got people that are coming to our church right now because they were walking by and heard the music and God drew them in. So maybe we should get louder. But what's happening here is that a guitar is being played that a few people could hear. But the amplifier is changing everything. Because of the amplifier, it doesn't change the notes being played. It doesn't change the instrument being played. But it causes it to be so much louder and reach far more places and, and in fact, sound fuller and better. The word being preached this morning is good. But it's the people that receive it. He doesn't say the whole world has heard the messages we preach to you. He said, the whole province has heard what is coming forth from you. When the word was preached to you, you took it and something happened in you that now it's coming from you. 
You see, Paul and, and, and anybody that went with them, when they'd preach, they could be heard by a crowd. They could be heard by a small group of people. But the thing that reached the whole world, the thing that, that reached the provinces surrounding was the gospel echoing through the believers in the region. What they heard, they received. What they received began to grow. And when it began to grow, they became the amplifiers for the word of God. Nobody really, nobody really, I'm talking about unbelievers. There, there's probably not too many people in Lloydminster that woke up this morning, looked at their watch and said, oh man, I'm talking about unbelievers. And said, oh man, I wonder what Pastor Jonathan is preaching today. They, they don't care. Those people don't even know I'm preaching this morning. And if they did, they're not giving it a second thought. They, their head hits the pillow again, or they look, you know, they go and do something. They're, they're not thinking about that, but I guarantee you, if whatever I preach this morning affects your life, if whatever God says through his word affects your life, they'll know about it tomorrow when you go to work. Amen. They'll know about it when you run into somebody in the mall and the power of God is on you to see them saved, set free, and delivered. They'll know about it then. They couldn't care less if I'm preaching this morning. But the way the gospel is amplified, the way the word of God is amplified is when it begins to bear fruit in the church and echoes from the church. So here's what he says. He says, the whole world is hearing about it. The whole province is hearing about it. They're hearing about your faith. Then he says, but, but let's go back. He says in verse five, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, the first time you read this, most of you say, okay, that means it didn't just come with words, there were miracles too. And you're right. Paul said, with preaching the gospel, with signs and wonders, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. The gospel is fully preached when God matches what he says, when you see those signs and wonders. There should always be miracles. There should always be deliverance. There should always be supernatural works of the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you, in this scripture, he's not just talking about those visible miracles. Because he tells us how he knows that it came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way he knows that the word came with the power of the Holy Spirit is that it produced full conviction in them. Now, when we hear the word conviction, how many of you, when you hear the word conviction, picture a smiley face? Anybody? You notice we don't have any fast songs fast, dancey praise and worship songs that are on the topic of conviction. We've been programmed to think that's a bad word or at least a tough word. What does conviction really mean? To be fully convinced of something. So the reason we think of it in a, in a rough way is because, well, we remember the scripture where Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes... He will convert, convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you stop there, you'll miss the definition of what he's talking about, won't you? This is why it's not a good idea for you to cherry-pick Bible verses. You should read the whole thing, right? So people walk away and say, well, the Holy Spirit will convict me of sin. Well, read the whole thing. What does he say? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then he explains himself. Jesus goes on to say... He will convict the world about sin. Why? Because they don't believe in me. So what's the sin the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of? Unbelief. 
not believing in Jesus. He said he will convict them regarding sin because they don't believe in me. He will convict regarding righteousness because I go to the Father. And he will convict them regarding judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, it's important that you understand this. When you were born again, the Holy Spirit had to convict you of the sin of unbelief. You had to know it's a problem that I don't believe and I want to believe. You had to be shown that you needed a Savior. So, of course, if you think you're fine, before I can save somebody's life, before you can save them from death, you have to convince them they're dying. Isn't that right? If I said, drink this. You've been poisoned, but I have the antidote. How many of you would just take the antidote? Well, I mean, maybe because you knew me. But let's say I was a stranger. <laughs> I'm a stranger. I show up at your house and say, you've been poisoned. Here's the antidote. You wouldn't go, oh, well, okay. Oh, it tastes like strawberry. Nobody would do that. <laughs> at least I hope you don't do that, please. <laughs> you don't do that. But first, you have to be convinced that you need it. Any of you show up at the hospital recently and just say, doctor, I feel fine, but cut me open. (laughs) Please. I've never had surgery. I hear it's a blast. I hear you get gassed. You're happy for a while. You get to sleep, and it's the best sleep everybody's ever had. So please, just cut me open. Nobody says that. You have surgery when you've been fully convinced convicted of the fact, you have full conviction that you need surgery, right? So the Holy Spirit's going to make you convinced that not believing in him is the sin that'll keep you from heaven and send you to hell, right? It's the one thing you can't escape. The Bible says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The one sin that's going to keep people out of heaven is the sin of rejecting Jesus, And that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why? What's the Holy Spirit's job? To bring you to Jesus. So you reject Jesus, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's why he says that's the sin that can't be forgiven. I can forgive everything. I can help you with everything. But if you reject the one who's going to save you from your sin, there's no other sacrifice for sin. But then what does he say? I want to convict you regarding righteousness. So I want you to be fully convinced about righteousness. And he's not just talking about the fact that you're righteous by the blood of Jesus. He's talking about what is God's righteousness in this situation. Do you know the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to tell you how God wants to do things. He's going to tell you the right thing to do. So when I'm doing the wrong thing, the Holy Spirit inside of me is convincing me of his way. And when you're off that way, you know it, don't you? It's because of the Holy Spirit that when I am rebellious or I go my own way and I do my own thing, I don't feel good about it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is not going to pet you and say, there, there, it's okay. You know what? Just keep killing yourself. The Holy Spirit loves you. God loves you. So the Holy Spirit will convince you of God's righteousness. And you'll want to follow that way. He will convince you, convict you of judgment. (gasps) Well, that's another word I don't like, judgment. It's 2016. We don't talk about things like judgment. Yes, we do. What, what, what kind of judgment are we talking about? Does Jesus say he's going to convict you regarding judgment because judgment's coming and you're all going to be on the hot seat? No. What judgment is he talking about? The ruler of 
this world has been judged. So the Holy Spirit will give you full conviction that you, in Christ, have the enemy under your feet. And there is no chance he wiggles out of it because the ruler of this world, the devil, has been judged. The Holy Spirit will convince you that in Christ you're more than a conqueror. So when it says, in the power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, that means when we preach the gospel, you fully were convinced of what we said. If the church of today could be fully convinced that the word is true, everything would change. When Abraham became fully persuaded that God would do what he said he would do, then he saw the miracle. Fully persuaded. When's the last time you've been fully persuaded of, of the thing you were very believing God for? Fully persuaded. Not partially persuaded, not mostly persuaded, but fully persuaded means you can't talk me out of it. You can't move me off of this. I won't waver in unbelief because I know that he who's promised is faithful. So when we're talking about the word being received in the power of the Holy Spirit, one of the things the Holy Spirit does, one of the reasons we know the power of the Holy Spirit was there was that people received it and they fully were convinced of it. What happens when you're fully convinced of the, of the word? What happens when the word of God takes that kind of root in your heart? It changes everything. It begins to grow. It begins to bear fruit. It begins to push other things out. It begins to deliver people. Faith comes, the Bible says, by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. That's when faith comes. Jesus went about, how many of you know he went about doing miracles? Casting out evil spirits. All of those things. What did he do before he did all that? He preached. And he taught. Too many of us think that a teacher means he's somebody that that goes through the word and when you don't understand it, he helps you understand it. Yeah, that's true. But you're kind of thinking of Jesus as your junior high math tutor, you know, that's, that's saying, do you not get the problem? Let me help you with that. Jesus was called teacher more than he was called anything else. But what did he say the teacher does? Sows the word. Plants it, watches it grow. So Jesus sees a group of people who followed him around the sea so that they could have miracles in their life. And what does he do when he feels compassion for them? He teaches them. Because they needed to be taught so that they could receive healing. So we got to change our definition of what being taught is. Do you think that he sat them down and and they sit down on the grass and he begins to teach them and he says, okay, guys, we're going to have Bible school class. And by the end of this, you all are going to have degrees. We have the disciples here and they have certificates for all of you. If you'll sit sit down and be still during this three-day seminar, we'll give you each schedules and we'll give you each certificates and you can go back and say I've been certified I've been through a seminar with Jesus the Nazarene that's not what he says right 
He teaches them, and what does he say? He says, if their eyes are open when I teach them, if their ears are open to hear when I teach them, if their hearts are open when I teach them, then they will hear and they will turn and I will heal them. When you receive the word, it turns you. What did it do to the Thessalonians? It turned them from idols and turned to the living God. God wants to turn people today. He wants to turn you. Maybe that's the problem. Half the time you've been fighting a battle and you've been swinging as hard as you can, but you're turned the wrong way. What did Paul say? I don't box as if beating the air. Well, of course you don't box as if beating the air. The reason he said it is because half the church boxes as if beats the air. And they're expending the same amount of energy, but it's not doing any good. Why? Because you're facing the wrong direction. The word of God turns us. It plants things in us. It creates things in us. The word of God created the universe, right? (laughs) God said, let there be light. God God didn't say, I need to convince the light that it needs to do its job. I need to convince the light that it is the right thing to produce, you know, luminescence. I need to convince the light that people need to see what they're doing. No, he spoke and it was created. Lazarus, God didn't lecture him into being alive, right? Lazarus, you're a bum. Lazarus, do you realize your sisters are going to starve without you going to your job? Lazarus, you need to get up, buddy. I know everybody felt sorry for you. You got your funeral. You got what you wanted. But buck up, boy. Pull up your bootstraps and get out of the tomb. Lazarus didn't need to be convinced. But Lazarus had no ability to be alive, right? Let me just put it plainly. Lazarus could not will himself to be alive. Lazarus could not decide that it would be a good idea for him to be alive. It was beyond his control. When God's word spoke, though, things were created. Things were killed. I mean, come on, guys. After four days, whatever killed you is not as bad as what's, what your body's doing to you now right? (laughs) Have you seen an animal that's been dead for four days? Whatever killed that animal is minor compared to what's going on now. So when Jesus spoke to Lazarus, not only did the disease that killed him go away, but new things were created in him. Cells were created. I mean, blood was, everything, everything in him. He probably got new organs. He was revived. And it was because the word of God is creative. It creates things. So when the script, when the word of God came to those people, those Thessalonians, it created something in them. They received it and it created something in them. And because it created something in them, it sounded forth from them. I'll just tell you a secret. Every Sunday and Wednesday when I get up to speak the word of God, my prayer is, And my hope is that there will be someone who will be fully convinced of the word of God. Because even even one person is fully convinced of the word of God, they can change the whole city. If one person can be convinced, how much more if we all could? Will you say, well, of course. Brother, I believe what you're saying. I believe every word. You haven't said anything today that I don't believe. And that might be true, but have I said anything that you are fully convinced of? If the answer is yes, praise the Lord. 
But every time I hear the word, I ask myself, why am I hearing that again? Do you know, something annoying happens every now and then where someone on one side of the continent has a word from God for me. Then I go, and a year later, someone else on the other side of the continent that doesn't know this person has the same exact word for me. And I go, what's up, guys? Why are you telling me something I already hear? Why are you telling me something I already believe? I remember David McGrew talking about that. When he said God told him the same thing like three different times through three different people who didn't talk to one another. Well, why are you telling me this, God? And he looks at, he says, God, why do you have to tell me that? I already believe that. And God said to him, you don't believe it like you think you believe it. So that's why I'm saying it to you again. If God is saying the same thing to you, he wants to put it deeper in you than it's been. He wants to make it more alive than it's been. You need to hear it for some reason. Every time I pick up the Bible, I'll read scriptures that changed my life 10 years ago, and I expect that they will still change my life today. Because like I said, it's alive. Full conviction. Full conviction is what we're looking for. If we could, have, if we could be fully convicted of the word today, fully convicted that what, fully, fully convinced, because some of you are still wincing at the word convicted. <laughs> Does that mean I'm supposed to feel bad? If it makes you feel bad, then maybe you need to figure out what's out of line so you can get in line with the Word of God. Believe me, when you get in line with it, it'll, make, it'll feel good. When you're resisting it, what did, what did Jesus say to Paul when he was Saul? Or when he was, was running from God? He said, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. The same Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul later said is a comforter that comforts us in all our affliction was the Holy Spirit that was causing him to be uncomfortable because he was going the wrong direction. So the same word of God that, that uh, you know, Brother Kwong will hear and it'll cause him to be excited and, and full of faith might cause somebody else to feel very uncomfortable. And the difference is sometimes that word is meant to change something. And if you fight it, you'll be uncomfortable. And you could blame me. You could blame the church you're attending. You could blame it. I mean, you could blame the translator. But ultimately... It's a God who loves you enough not to leave you like you are, but to cause you to grow. He says this. If we were to skip down to the second chapter, and I've read this more times than, I, than I'd care to admit. In verse 13, for this reason, we constantly thank God that you receive, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When you receive the Word of God as the Word of God, it performs its work in you because it's alive. That's cool because that means if I preach today on the healing power of Jesus, and we read in the Scripture that it's God's will to heal you, and you're fully convinced of it, who in the world can stop you from being healed? Right. The Word will perform its work in you. Yes. If you're convinced today that whatever habit, whatever addiction, whatever thoughts that you've been fighting for the longest time, you just can't get past it. 
If you're convinced today that the same God who called light out of darkness is able to shine light in your heart, is able to renew your mind by the Holy Spirit, is able to give you the power over sin, then who in the world can stop you from being free? One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is, is just a small blip in Acts chapter 14. I love it. We don't see anything else from this city. We don't see anything else really from, from this group of people except that they, they begin to think that the apostles are gods and when they say we're not gods, then they want to kill them. The crowds are fickle, right? Sound like Oilers fans. Now the Oilers fans haven't been that hopeful in years. What am I talking about? <laughs> I hear the groans of the people. Lord, the groans, of the cry, hear the cry and the groans of your people. <laughs> Who've been groaning for so many years. <laughs> Expectations, that's right. <laughs> because of their despondency. I thought about that the other day. I thought, you know, if, if the scripture was written today, would, would they use sports analogies? I'm convinced they would because they use sports analogies in the, in the New Testament. And they use battle analogies. And most of you have never been to battle, so, you know. He says in Acts chapter 14, verse 8, at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Now, bear with me because I know I've made this point so many times through the years, but you need to hear this again. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and he had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped up and began to walk. Let me ask you, how much, how much do you figure this man knew about God? Probably not a lot. This is the first time the gospel's come to his city. What's the first thing he does? He sits and he listens. And as the sermon progresses, Paul sees that the man has faith to be made well. Let me ask you, do you think the man came with faith? Where would he have gotten that faith from? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, right? He never heard the word of God before. There was no faith. But sitting and hearing changed something in him. How many people do you figure were in that meeting? How many, how many people were in the crowd when that happened? Probably, probably a lot, huh? How many were healed? Just one that we know of. Why just one? Did God pick him because he liked him? Did God pick him because, well, he's had, it's triage, all right? So we're going to treat him first because he's worse off. No. The scripture tells us Paul stopped preaching when he saw this man had faith. This man had faith to be made well. Where'd that faith come from? Do you think that this man has been working up his faith for years? No. He just simply believed what was being preached. Now, where do you think, where do you think he got the idea he could be healed? Come on, you guys believe that now because you've been Christians for a while or you've read the Bible. You've at least heard about the Bible. You know about Jesus. This man doesn't know any of that. 
I mean, if this man is a Greek, if he's a pagan, which we find out the crowd was pretty much pagan because these aren't Jews, because when they find out that a man is healed, they, they think that, that Paul is Hermes and that Barnabas is Zeus. So these aren't believers. And if they are, it's a weird breed of believers. So where does this man get the idea he could be healed? Because you know what? Those pagans didn't believe Zeus could, would come down and heal you. They believe that the Greek, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, they don't really care about us. They might help us, but we're just pawns in their little games between one another. Where did the man get the idea he could be healed? Well, Paul was preaching. What do you reckon Paul was preaching about? What, what, what would you preach if you came to a city that had never heard about Jesus? What would you preach? You'd preach Jesus, right? We preach Christ and him crucified. What do we preach? We preach Christ. So I imagine Paul got up and began to preach Christ. What did Peter say? You've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I imagine Paul preached something similar. He preached Jesus, he preached the cross, he preached the resurrection. And I imagine at some point he's preaching about how Jesus went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And everybody's hearing, well, Jesus healed people. Isn't that what we hear when we come to church? Jesus healed people. When we think of the Bible stories, Jesus healed them. Oh, how good. Jesus healed the lame man. Jesus healed the blind man. Do you know what? At some point, I believe this. At some point, that man is sitting here, and he's hearing, Jesus healed that person, and Jesus healed that person. And at some point, something clicks, and it goes from Jesus healed that person to Jesus could heal me. And the more he hears... It's not Jesus could heal me. Then he becomes convinced Jesus will heal me. And that's when Paul stops preaching. Because that's the moment of faith. The man believes he can be healed. The man believes that Jesus wants to heal him. At that point, you will be healed. Paul stops worth stopping a sermon for one guy. He says, stand up on your feet. And immediately the man stood up on his feet. In fact, it says he leapt up. I've said this before, but he's never walked. He's been lame since he was born. So when Paul says stand up, he just tells his feet, full engines, boys. He, he doesn't stand up. He leaps up. He's not going to take any risks. He fully leaps up and he's healed. How many of you, don't, don't, don't raise your hand. How many of you, when you heard this story, are, are thinking what the crowds thought? Jesus healed that man. That's not a bad thing to think. But what I'm looking for is for somebody to hear that and say, if Jesus did it for him, he'll do it for me. Because that's what changed that man. Faith came. Faith means you're fully believing in God. But faith has to have foundation in something. Faith has foundation in what God has promised, right? I can't have faith in God that, that today I'm going to go home and there's going to be a unicorn in my living room. Right? Is that faith? No, because where did God ever promise a unicorn in my living room? He never did. So my faith, that's not faith at all. That's just foolishness. But faith hangs on to what God has said. 
Faith hangs on to what God has done. And faith applies it to myself. What did Jesus say to the disciples as they were in the boat? They were looking for bread. They couldn't find the bread. And they said, oh no, we forgot the bread. And Jesus looks at them and says, where did we just come from, boys? Well, we just came from when you fed 5,000 people. Yeah, how many loaves and fishes did I have? Oh, you had this many. How many were left over? Well, you had this many. Okay, and then he said, then after that, how many people did I feed? Well, you fed 4,000. How many loaves did I have? You had this many. How many did we have left over? You had this many. Then he says, are you so hard-hearted? Don't you remember? Are your hearts that hard, he says? What's he saying? If I did it there, you should assume that I'll do it here. Now, most of us would say, well, Lord, I wouldn't presume that. Who am I to tell you? You already did it for them and you did it for them. Who am I to assume you'd do it today? But Jesus told them they should. He, he actually rebuked them for not expecting that the miracle he did there, he'd do here. Do you see that? When, what, what attitude is it that he calls out? What, what condition of the heart does he call out? He says, when they don't believe that he'll do here what he did there, it's proof that their hearts are hard. I'll submit to you that there are Christians all over Canada today that came to church with hearts harder than they realized. And they'll hear the stories and they'll say, those are good stories. I'm glad I heard that. And they'll go home and nothing's different. But I'll also tell you there are thousands, if not, if not millions, that came to church this morning all over North America that said, if he did it for them, he can do it for me. Amen. And are fully convinced, fully convinced of the word of God. I believe one of the greatest miracles, I believe that we're going to see miracles. I believe we will. In fact, I really believe right now there's somebody that heard that story right now and you've just become convinced that you can be set free, you can be healed. And I believe that in Jesus' name. May it be so in your life. Receive that. Don't let anybody stop you. And every, every time I get up and preach, I pray that somebody receives what God has to give them. Don't come to church just to learn. Come to church to receive. We come to give as well, don't we? We worship God. Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, as well as every other day of the week is a day of worship. When we come together, we come to, to offer our worship to God. But you guys know, it's not just about what we give. It's about what he wants to plant in us. It's about what we're supposed to receive. What does Peter say? He said, with eagerness, receive the word implanted. You didn't come just to hear the word. You didn't just come to learn the word. You should come to receive the word with full conviction. So while we love, and I believe we'll see more and more miracles, I believe we'll see them today. Visible miracles, visible healings, visible deliverance, visible salvation. I also believe that one of the greatest miracles is when the Holy Spirit causes the word of God to become so real in you that you're fully convinced of it. It goes past your, 
your, your knowledge, it goes past your understanding, it goes past your doubts, it goes past your fears, it goes past your prejudices, and it hits you right where you need it. And that's our prayer today. Will you be fully convinced of the word today? Because that's what we're looking for. That's the kind of people that amplify the word of God. The world is not hearing in most cases, the preacher who preaches on Sunday morning. They're hearing the Word. They're seeing the Word. They are experiencing the Word alive in the people of God. And you came today to be equipped. And you came today to receive. And the only way that that Alberta is going to hear about what's going on in Lloydminster is if the people gathered today, if the people gathered on Wednesday, if the people that gathered and received the word will be fully convinced of it. And when you're fully convinced, it changes everything. Amen? Amen. Stand up with me.